Welcome to the Swapflix Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede, and I'm joined today by Bill Arsenault of Movie Going with Bill. <laughs> I like how you said Arsenault. Uh, Bill Arsenault. <laughs> did I miss a syllable in there? I tend to like mumble this late at night. No, no, you did it right. It's just you added emphasis to the beginning. I thought that, <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Arsenault. Arsenault, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm going to my game show hosting voice. Oh, right, right. Which which game show host do you identify with the most? Uh, who's drunkest? Uh, Pat Sajak? I don't know. He's probably said some awful things. Maybe not him. He, he's said and done some awful things, but uh, if I remember, there was a controversy that he... Something with... Um, like, he was sleeping with someone on the show, but... Who was the the one who did Family Feud back in the day? Oh, he was probably the drunkest. The one that inappropriately touched the women? He would kiss everyone with yeah, full yeah. passion. I mean, I mean, technically it wasn't inappropriate, but it kind of felt inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he did it in a way that was kind of dirty. I, I forget his name. but uh, Steve Harvey's not laying wet ones on everybody who walks through the, the door, you know? No, but he, he gives everyone like a confused look where he's where it's kind of like, <laughs> I'm ashamed about, uh, about you, you know? So I'm ashamed to be around you, but he's also confused. Okay, now I know who I uh, want to emulate. It's Steve Harvey. <laughs> okay i dress garishly i'm confused i don't know what's going on perplexed by other people perplexed okay yeah yeah we nailed it all right all right that's cool well thank you again for having me um i know we do this uh or we've done this maybe once or twice before the sefco uh when we'll get into it but uh i'm always excited to talk about it yeah you've become a regular guest on the show uh if not only just through film festival coverage because you are a local new orleans critic and you cover the film festival beat in a way that no one else who was willing to talk to me does (laughs) (laughs) i I try my best i i admit i don't i can't there's no way to catch everything at a film festival unless you're like a workhorse and you just consume caffeine and you're able to to meet those deadlines and everything so i so i'm I'm fortunate enough to just catch what i want to catch and i try my best and we are widening the scope a little bit because this is not a hyper-local episode. This is a regional southeastern United States episode. Yes. And I've always been confused by the, by that. Does parts of Texas count? I, I don't think, think Texas so. is its own beast. Yeah, Texas is its own beast. They have their own film critics associations. But yeah. I always kind of felt like Houston would sort of fit, but maybe not. because I'm just saying because of proximity. But... Um, yeah, uh, that's the we're the southeastern region of uh, the United States. We're in it, and uh, it covers Louisiana through Georgia, and I think, I think a couple of uh, like South Carolina, maybe Tennessee. I'm not sure. Arkansas definitely. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing because of Arkansas, but I guess whenever I think of Arkansas, I think of Bill Clinton. I've been learning in recent years just how closely tied Arkansas is to North Louisiana. Like, they're practically the same state. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Much more similar to uh, Arkansas than New Orleans. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's, I mean, it's just what it is. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, uh, it, it, it's weird when you get closer to a border, how the the cultures just kind of begin to bleed together yeah. a little bit. Especially Texarkana. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, so this is the second annual wrap-up of the Southeastern Film Critics Association list of the best movies of the year. Um, they've been doing it a lot longer than we've been recapping it. This is our second annual review of a decades-running 
Film Critics Association. Yep. Uh, I don't know how long you've been a member, Bill. This this is my second uh, year doing it. I've been a member, I want to say since 2015, but it may have been 2016 or 2014, somewhere in that range. And I was fortunate enough to get in. All I did was email one of the guys in charge, and they were like, uh, yeah, there's really no application. Just, you know, we'll look into you. And, you know, and they, they did, and they were like, yeah, you want to join? Sure. That's awesome. Yeah. It was kind of one of those things you have to know someone to get into. Now it's a little more open, a little bit more open. You have to nominate someone, and then they you know, go through the process. But, but it's a little better now. And I'm looking at the press release again. Uh, it looks like it was 89 critics across nine states in the American South. Yeah. Formed a consensus on the best films of the year. <laughs> well, and we both are part of that number. We both <laughs> submitted ballots this year. Uh, what I want to do just outright, I'm going to read the top 10. I probably should be saving this for like a big finale, but I kind of want to get it out in the open. Okay. Do you want to start with number 10 and then go down? Nope. I'm going to read it the way it's in the press release, top to bottom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm like uh, dispensing with ceremony here. Okay. So Sefka's top 10 films of 2023. Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Holdovers, Past Lives, Barbie, Four Things, American Fiction, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Anatomy of a Fall, and The Zone of Interest. Yep. I have a few like big picture thoughts about this as consensus among a wide range of critics, and just that it feels kind of unsurprising, especially compared to last year where there were like, some kind of weird outliers on there. Like I was very happy with how well RRR did last year. Yeah, yeah, that was, but that, that kind of had some buzz, you know, throughout the year. It's kind of like how this, well, I don't want to say it's like this year, but um, this year's big buzz or big thing was Barbenheimer. Yeah. Uh, you know, which was like an internet thing, and then it kind of just blew up from there. And that was fun. It was fun to discuss and to meme, and then, of course, to watch those movies, and they turned out to be the hits that they were. Uh, and of course, last year with RRR, it was it was another buzz thing, you know, word of mouth, and then people were like, "Oh, this is a musical action movie that's kind of absurd, but very fun and very well done." And people saw it in droves, and there you go. You know, uh, it's nice when movies catch on like that. I think that's really cool, and it's really cool when film critics pay attention to that because it's not it's not just about the um, the movies that are quote-unquote meant to be Oscar movies. It's about all movies, or at least it should be. Yeah, I think the thing with RRR is that it benefited from Netflix distribution. And like by the time people voted late in the year, you know, it had been around since the summer on Netflix. So people had time to like catch up with the word of mouth of it. Where I think like this year's equivalent is probably Godzilla Minus One. And you would have oh, to have yeah. gone to a theater in the past few weeks to catch it before voting. But that movie's like a like a snake bite. You know what I mean? Like uh the the venom gets in you really quick. And by venom I mean the <laughs> the uh uh the the wonder and the joy of that movie, you know, like like the the unexpectedness of how great it is, if if you liked it or not. You know, I don't I really loved it, but uh, I don't know why I said snake bite and venom. Venom is kind of a negative thing, but <laughs> I guess what I mean is it goes through you really fast. You know, there's little time to uh, to get that injection to save yourself. In this case, it's like the inverse. You know, it's a positive. So, you know, 
But um, yeah, I, I think Godzilla minus one is is the equivalent, uh, the proper equivalent to uh, RRR from last year, where it just kind of sprung out of not nowhere, but it thanks to a, a little release, it ended up getting a big release, and the word of mouth just spread. And so, if that's like the kaiju size snake in the grass that like snuck up on everyone, I think what you were saying earlier about like movies being considered like Oscar worthy. Like, I feel like the narrative of all these movies in the top 10 is pretty sealed. Like, if this was the best picture ballot, these 10 films for yeah. the year, I would not be surprised if it was this exact list. Really? Even Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Maybe you could switch that one out for, like, uh, I don't even know what you would throw in there. Uh, I would throw in something weird. That's just me. I'd throw in Skinamarink just to kind of confuse people. What the <laughs> hell's that? Well, I would be surprised by that. Yeah, well, well yeah. <laughs> but if this is the Oscar slate, just saying, like, even if it's only nine out of ten of these, yeah. uh, you th- throw in Ferrari or something uh, for the 10th slot. Okay. Um, it wouldn't be bad. Like, this is like a pretty solid list of movies. There have been much more embarrassing slates of like best picture winners or best picture nominees. Like, every <laughs> one of these movies, I either rated like three stars, enjoyed it, or five stars loved it. Like the the range is pretty weighted towards the positive side for me. Like I have I have affection and appreciation for every movie on this list. Okay, those not on the list that you felt ambivalent or negative towards. Exactly. Like last year, uh, Top Gun Maverick was on our Sefka uh, winning list, and I uh, hated that movie. There's not there's no Maverick uh, disrupting my my good vibes. <laughs> See, I well, I'm easy to please, and I had a good time watching it, and I really felt it was an exciting film. But, but that's that's me, you know. I, that's the kind of films I, I don't know if I would nominate it for. Maybe I did. I'll have to look back on that. I don't remember, but I was I was okay with it being on the list. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's 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 fine. It's like uh, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse for me. It, that almost feels, considering the others on the list, feels kind of awkward. But it deserves a place, you know, um, considering the scores it's gotten, the ratings it's gotten. And, uh, of course, if you've seen Into the Spider-Verse, you know that that series is just going to be uh, incredible going forward. Yeah, my frustration with that one is that it's half a movie. And uh, we'll see the other half when it comes oh, out. Oh, yeah, I heard it. But, yeah, I, I unfortunately haven't seen it yet. I will be catching it before the end of the year. But And, and that's another thing. I feel bad for, you know, because... We we had to for Sefka we had to extend the deadline time because we we weren't getting enough access to the films we felt in enough time so we kind of extended it by a week or two the the ballot submission date and uh, I, I fear that not not enough of us caught as much as we wanted to uh, and that that does suck you know because you really want to get an, a better overview of of the year. But um, it's what it is, and um, I, I'm, I am happy with the list. I am happy with the top ten. Do you have any like broad general thoughts on like, what made it through? Well, uh, let's see. The, the top spot went to Oppenheimer, and the fifth spot went to Barbie. I, uh, I feel that's kind of interesting, like, uh, th- that it could be interchangeable in a way. Like, I voted, I'll, you know, full disclosure, I voted for my top number one spot barbie and um you could change change that out i i feel and it would be perfectly fine but also because of the whole barbenheimer thing it feels kind of poetic that the 
number one and number five spot go to Barbenheimer. I had very little overlap with my ballot and what made it into the top 10. And uh, Barbie is one of the two titles that uh, I was also voting for as well. <laughs> so your list was a little, suffice to say, a little different. Yeah, I, I'm not going to list it today because um, our next episode in the feed should be Swamplex's Films of the Year. And I actually um, voted a little different in Sefka this year. Like last year, I voted with my head and like things that I knew weren't going to do well, like um, just kind of left them off the ballot and um, try to boost the things I really loved that yeah. I thought people might have actually gone to see. Uh, this year, I didn't cater my list at all. I just kind of submitted everything with my heart instead and uh, just kind of voted the way I wanted to go. Maybe because we do these roundups now, I have like accountability where I have to like answer for my sins. And uh, <laughs> I'm taking this anonymous ballot and making it public for no reason. This is like a Catholic thing. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do your <laughs> Hail, like, let's, let's, let's see. Do 15 Hail Marys. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my overlap was Barbie and Poor Things, which we're resting uh, somewhere in the middle there, five and six. Okay. But I was definitely pulling for Barbie as far as like the Barbenheimer split goes. That, that was like a really impressive studio film for me. Like most of the big $100 million studio properties based on IP that have like basically eaten up all of the screen space over the past decade, I have like no interest in whatsoever. Yeah, uh, and it was just really nice to sit down and watch one of those and think it was like extremely well art directed, thoughtful, funny, emotionally satisfying, genuinely creative. Yeah, yeah, it's like a really good, solid Hollywood picture, which I really don't feel like I resonate with that often. Yeah, I, I totally agree uh, about Barbie, and uh, it is sad, but about not sad about IP movies. I. I I hate that IP has kind of taken over and, and it's become intellectual property uh, has kind of taken over. And uh, although this year it, you can almost see the superhero one, uh, you know, with the MCU and the DCEU, which is pretty much dead now uh, as it's transferring over to James Gunn. They didn't do so well this year, did they? Well, the Spider-Verse is the uh, only one. The only one that did on really, really well, but, and made it on the list critically. But I mean, like the Marvels, you know, that, that got, you know, uh, not I don't, I don't know how ratings wise. I don't remember, but box office wise, it was disappointing. And then you you had uh, Fallout from Quantumania and uh, <laughs> some other flicks. I don't know how Aquaman two is going to do. Uh, I don't think anyone gives a crap right now about it, you know because it's like, well, how do we invest in it? It's the last one. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it's uh, it's IP like we're saying. But maybe some of that's wearing off. I don't know. Well, Barbie is like a good indicator that you can do something interesting with that style of filmmaking. Like th this is a very familiar product. If you want to be super like cynical about the movie, you could call it a toy commercial. And you wouldn't be inaccurate. Yeah, but it's that also is like true. interpretive and critical. Know <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. Like, I personally look forward to putting the People's Joker on my uh, ballot next year because that's finally oh. getting released. Oh God, yeah. When I heard that news, I was just so happy. I, I almost immediately emailed the publicist that's over that, and I was like, once the 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 review screeners are available, please put me on that list so I can so I can do something about it. And uh, she was like, Yeah, totally. 
<laughs> she was a little more excited about it. She put an exclamation point. So Hell yeah. hopefully, hopefully, you know, that means something. But um, uh, yeah, I'm excited for the People's Joker. And uh, hopefully that will be something we can all agree to put on the list, or at least most of us, the weird, <laughs> the weird ones of us. Yeah, that's kind of what I went for this year. I had a bunch of stuff that had no shot, uh, which <laughs> maybe you'll be able to tell later when we get to like individual categories what those titles would have been. But I- I'm curious, though, like how much overlap did you have with uh, the final 10 in your ballot? Uh, let's see. Barbie, Killers of the Flower. Oh, actually, Killers of the Flower Moon was also my number two. Nice. Uh, but I also had Bo is Afraid. I had Master Gardener. I had Blackberry. You know, I had Amius Men. That was also on my ballot as well. Oh, love really? That That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I loved it. It, it was, it was so weird and and crazy, but um, and, and quiet, but also loud. I don't know. It's hard to explain, but um, yeah, no. Uh, I think the only crossover was uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, and the top spot going to the the one that was the number five spot. So we're in we're in the same boat, kind of. Yeah, a little bit. Two, two, maybe three. Uh, no, two. I'm looking at it. It's just two. Was there anything that you kind of expected on there that you're surprised wasn't? Because I've maybe one or two titles like that. Uh, I think the one I was surprised by was Master Gardener not making it to the Interesting. top ten. You know, um, not just because it's Paul Schrader. I mean, I just felt like it was a really great film. But I also felt like there was a consensus among critics that agreed with that. And I kind of thought, okay, especially since this is the Southeastern Film Critics Association, the movie takes place, uh, or at least was was shot in the Louisiana, New Orleans. Uh, it was shot in Louisiana. I think a lot of it was New Orleans. Some of it was Central Louisiana, I think. And you know, I f- I figured there might be some grace there given to it, like, oh, it's a Southern movie, so you know, we could give a little more uh, credit. Uh, plus it's just a great movie also isn't it like a like kind of healing about like past racist institutions in the south like plantations and neo-nazi type stuff they're like healing that over and like moving on from it yeah there is there is that to it it's 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 a very interesting picture it's got it's got a lot of (laughs) i would say it's got it contains multitudes uh and there's there's a lot of complexity to it like you got scorny weaver who's who's kind of like uh, exerting her will almost over, uh, I want to say Jason Eisner, but that's not correct, Joel Edgerton, uh, and who's the, the, the ex-neo-Nazi. And uh, she, she gets turned on by the fact that he's got all these tattoos and it's like taboo, you know, and that kind of thing. And that's really weird. You know, and she gets jealous. And, you know, I don't know. The movie's got some some messed up sh- stuff in it. <laughs> I yeah, almost said, I almost said shit. Um, but yeah, it, it's 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 my kind of movie, and then it ends on a very happy note, which is, I don't know. I felt that was very uh, outrageous. You know, I, I was I was like, whoa, on that note, great. <laughs> I'll confess, I have not seen it. I, I'm kind of a Paul Schrader skeptic. Really? But mostly when it comes to his like late style stuff, like I, I love older oh, okay. stuff, like hardcore. Uh, we just did his um, remake of Cat People recently on this pod. Love that okay. movie. Yeah, he actually came to town for that when it screened yeah. at uh, what was it, Wildwood? That makes the sense. Wildwood programming series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he came for that. I, I missed it. 
I felt really bad about it, but because uh, I was like, man, I would have loved to to, to have been there in that room. But I think also he had an illness at the time, and he, uh, so it, it would have been like if I went to meet him, it, it would have been kind of awkward, you know. But uh, I heard he gave a really good talk. I'm looking around. I think like the two movies I'm surprised that were missing are Asteroid City and Priscilla. Really, Priscilla? Okay. Priscilla is like one of my favorite movies of all last year, easily. That's cool. That's nice. What did you think of Elvis? Yeah, you know, they came out like one was last year, one was this year. So, what was your take on Elvis? Uh, we actually just did an episode, me and James, where we compared those two movies back to back, and like, right. it's kind of odd. Like, they're both basically like feature length montages. Like, they're yeah. just constantly like bleeding one scene into another with these like very loud overtures of music taking over the soundtrack and kind of like overpowering the dialogue and in elvis's case it just completely pummels your brain with like the most obvious most garish visual information for three hours and then priscilla is this very lovely antidote to that which is like it's it's about boredom so it's very sparse but it's also like a beautiful movie and uh, the poetry of it really got me I, i think it's one of sofia coppola's best movies really that's that's pretty cool i like that I, I thought Elvis was, uh, I'm not going to say awful. Like I have kind of like a neutral reaction to it. It's like not something I watched. It's like something that happened to me, you know, yeah. <laughs> it just is I'm kind of fascinated by it, but it's, it's very numbing. <laughs> did you see Elvis and Nixon? The, uh, the Amazon movie with uh, Michael Shannon. I did see that. Uh, yeah. I don't really remember it, but I remember him in the wig. Yeah. Him in the wig and Kevin Spacey as Nixon. I mean, you know, this was just before all the Kevin Spacey stuff came out. And yeah. um, uh, I loved the movie. I, I felt like um, it, it was just a, 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 a sound picture. It didn't, didn't particularly have a lot to say. It was just kind of about a, a weird moment in history and speculating on what the conversation they had was like. Um, I almost felt like uh, in that movie, Elvis was kind of representing the people in a, in a weird way in a twisted way he was like uh sticking it to nixon even though he kind of liked nixon you know like he was eating his m&ms he drank his um his soda uh which they specifically said that's just for the president and he's like hey you mind if i take a sip and uh, nixon's like no not at all <laughs> he's clearly pissed off well yeah i think the whole like concept of the movie was just pointing out how absurd it was that one photograph where nixon what is he like anoint Elvis, like the drug czar of America? Like he's supposed to be like an anti-drug spokesperson. Something but he's also like, like the most pilled out person in America at the same time. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, the two of them right. posing together is absurd. Uh, right. They kind of just built a whole movie around that. <laughs> well, I don't think there's anything objectionable on this list. You know, this is like a really solid list of films. I, I enjoyed everything on here to a varying degree from like moderately to greatly yeah no it's it's a pretty it's a pretty good list uh i i don't think you you said that that if this translated to the oscars that uh you wouldn't be surprised um and i agree with that uh no year is going to be like the year when district nine got nominated because i'll never forget they had so many weird movies on that best picture nomination list and District 9 was one of them. And I like District 9, but I was like, n- at no other point in time would that get nominated for Best Picture. 
you know, it's like they were trying to attract audiences. Like, let's get the young people to see the Oscars this year. What about that weird movie from South Africa? That weird movie with the bugs? Let's nominate that. I felt like that. I'm looking up this year's slate now. I want to read these titles out. Okay. That was the year the Hurt Locker won. Yeah, yeah, that much deserved. You know, that was a good movie. Okay, other films. Avatar. The yeah. Blind Side? Oh my god. Yeah. That's embarrassing. Uh, District 9. An Education. Inglorious yeah. Bastards. Fine. Precious. I've never seen it, but it looks okay. Uh, <laughs> a Serious Man, which is pretty good. Up, the Pixar film. And also mm-hmm. Up in the Air, a movie I do not remember. I have no idea what that is. That's the one with George Clooney. He, he, his job is he fires people. Okay, there's nothing like that on this list. There's no blind side on this Sefka list. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. well, I want, I'm trying to remember what. Yeah, I think this was before my time in Sefka. Yeah, it was. And uh, I wonder if Sefka nominated the Blind Side. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to do some deep diving on that. Uh, or like Green Book would be a, another embarrassing modern win for the Oscars. Oh no, this this for that list, um, top ten in two thousand nine, up in the air took it for Sefka. All right. Interestingly enough, five hundred days of summer was number six. Weird. And uh, number nine was Fantastic Mr. Fox. Number ten was District Nine. And uh, nowhere on here is the Blind Side. No. Sefka is absolved. Better than the Oscars is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Yeah, especially with that recent controversy. Isn't that messed up? About the blind side? Yeah. wonder you're afraid of women i am not afraid of women sorry i shouldn't have said anything dr gertler says i don't always give consideration to my audience Ah. and who is dr gertler my shrink has dr gertler ever tried a good swift kick in the ass okay all right now your turn go ahead tell me something about me something negative something negative about you sure just one thing. Just one. So when I was posting about the Sefka winners, I kind of linked to each review that Swamplex had done of the movies. And I realized that we had not covered the holdovers at all. Kind of a thematically appropriate approach to that film because it is about like the leftovers at a boarding school over Christmas break. But yeah. it's not a movie I was particularly interested in seeing until it was like the one out of 10 Sefka winning films that I hadn't watched yet. So I I wanted to talk about it for this conversation and it ranked very highly. It was in the top three for Sefka this year. And if you look down the ballot for like individual category winners, almost all of them are plucked from Oppenheimer killers of the flower moon and the holdovers. Like those are very three important films in this list. And I'm a little surprised because Oppenheimer and Killers of the Flower Moon are these big, great directors taking these huge swings with a lot of money um, and both kind of commenting on their own greatness within the field. Like they're both, both Scorsese and Christopher Nolan are both like making the movies about themselves in a weird way. 
Uh, one of yeah. them very humbly, and the other one <laughs> very pridefully and not humbly at all. <laughs> I'll let you discern which one I'm talking about. <laughs> I assume it's Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> but I could uh, be wrong on that. I don't know. Yeah, basically, uh, Scorsese's involvement in Killers is like an apology. <laughs> like He's like, I'm so sorry I'm doing this. <laughs> oh, really? You felt that way? <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> He's like, I'm not the person who should be telling the story. I'm so sorry. I'm I here. think he's the person to, to, to tell, a, uh, to interpret a part of the story anyways. Yeah. The, the version he chose to tell, he did as, as best as he could for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. So the third film in that trio though, is Alexander Payne making his first movie in a, a long time. And it's not a big swing at all. Like it's one of his least daring films. It's very like calm and cozy. It's not mean in the way that his older films like Election and Citizen Ruth and even like Sideways and Downsizing are like, this is a very well-behaved Alexander Payne film. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well-behaved. And it's set over the Christmas holiday at a boarding school in 1970s Massachusetts. I think it's 1970, actually. Yeah. And all of the like visual patina of the film is a callback to that era in filmmaking. It's very like heavily referring to like Hal Ashby, like dark comedies, like Harold and Maude type stuff uh, from around that time. As a matter of fact, it opens with uh, classic film credit logos of the studios and with the yeah. Roman titles and, uh, and all that. It's, it's really interesting how it, how it opens. Yeah. And you can't go like five minutes without tripping over a Cat Stevens needle drop. Like it's really legging on thick. There's a lot of digital film grain added on after the fact. It was not shot on film, but you know, they made it look like it was as best as they could. Yeah. Um, even though the movie itself is not mean, it does feature mean characters. It features straight up assholes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the main trio is Paul Giamatti is a uptight school teacher who's very lonely. Uh, he's got a lot of like physical maladies that make him unpleasant to other people. Uh, <laughs> one of them is that he has a, a glass eye that's like not pointed in the right direction. Uh, when he's like looking fish. at you, he also has a, uh, yeah, a body odor issue where his, his body doesn't break down certain oils that like leave a fishy smell as the day goes on. It gets stronger. And occasionally he gives off a sound effect that sounds like a fart. <laughs> I think one of the first shots of the movie is like of his preparation H on his like counter where he brushes. His <laughs> yes, that made me laugh out loud so hard. I was like, we we now know everything about this guy. Right, right. Uh, so he's prickly because he's you know lonely and ostracized anyway. So he like lashes out with his intellect to make people feel small, and he is because he's unpopular among the staff. Stuck with the holdovers job where he like babysits the kids whose parents did not pick them up from boarding school in the stretch between Christmas and New Year's. Um, and it gets whittled down to just one teenager who's basically like a miniature version of him in training. It's this kid who's like having a tough time with his family and is learning how to become a bully the same way Paul Giamatti is. And the, the only other person there with them is played by Divine Joy Randolph, who is, um, I just saw her in Dolomite Is My Name recently. She's very good in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here she plays like the kitchen manager of like the school cafeteria. So she's like the only cook on campus. Uh, her son recently died in the Vietnam War and he was like a previous student at the school uh, because he was black and on there through scholarship because of her job. He was not treated the same as all the like white privileged rich kids that are eating her food every day. But, 
you know, she is like tied to the school in the same way Giamatti is. She's kind of like this person living at the margins there, not very well liked or respected, but you know, holds her place. But she's very friendly with Giamatti. Like they're they they almost identify with each other in some ways. Yeah, her darkness is not mean and like lashing out the way that the uh, two male characters are. She is dark on the inside. She is like um, drinking heavily to numb the pain of her son just dying. Uh, so like she is also going through it the way that they are, but she's making it very internal and inward in a way that's like really sad to watch. But she still has compassion and kindness for other people, and uh, the two of them can learn something from her uh, in the same way that like they could learn from everybody. They're very like all closed off characters who all learn to um, become like a little makeshift family, at least for the two week stretch that they have to be one. And what I'll say about this movie is that it does not try very hard to achieve anything great, but it is very cozy. It's very funny. And if I think of it less as like a great film that, you know, exemplifies the best of what this year had to offer and think of it more as just like a good Christmas movie. I think it's a good Christmas movie, you know? Like, I really it like is. it on that w- level. It's a wonderful Christmas movie. It, uh, <laughs> I mean, like I said just a second ago, it's full of assholes, jerks, and uh, miscreants, you know? Not just the kids. I mean, Giamatti himself, of course, is the ultimate jerk. Given the, He's openly hostile to these kids in their, uh, in their classes. And uh, even to to the uh the the dean of the school he's he's kind of he kind of lashes out at a little bit uh or at the very least lashes out around him and he just still is the one subjected to it uh despite being an okay guy the dean comes off like he's he's kind of just in that role you know but uh yeah no i agree this is a great christmas movie (laughs) even if it's in a at first a bitter way but later down, as the movie progresses, it becomes in a very sweet way. Because, uh, again, the characters go through their um, uh, periods where they're beginning to learn things. And uh, eventually, maybe they did, did learn some things from each other. Uh, even if they're kind of still a little stuck, they, they kind of were stuck together. So maybe, again... They they did in fact learn something. Uh, when I, after I watched it, I, I immediately thought of Down by Law, uh, Jim Jarmusch's uh, classic, and um, I felt like this movie has has some threads uh, that it shares with it. It's kind of, it's about three people uh, stuck together, and they're on like this. Um, it's not like a quest or an escape or anything, although technically they are trying to escape their situations. Uh, but uh, they're together and they're getting through it together. Uh, and at the end of the movie, it's uh, there's like that fork in the road kind of kind of thing, you know. So yeah, I think those comparisons are right. And uh, but this movie isn't as um, what am I trying to say here? It's it's not the same as Down by Law in the sense of having some kind of uh, weird extra meaning to it you know subtext and everything yeah it's all very on the surface it's very surface it's a very straightforward film but there's nothing wrong with that you know i like it when a film is just a film it's just the story it's just the script it's just the performances do you know what it reminded me of was like a um do you ever see funny pages last year funny pages it's about this like kid who was like a cartoonist and he was like learning i think in like new jersey how to like 
become an asshole so that he could like feel superior in the like alt comic scene and he basically just gets his ass kicked by life and it all like blows up on christmas at his family's like suburban home 20 pages i'm not the no i don't think i saw this one but uh you're describing it this sounds like it's right up my alley uh yeah i'm looking it up right now yeah it's got andy miller Milanakis in it. That's that's something. The Holdovers is a much more crowd pleaser film than Funny Pages is. That one's actually caustic and has like, I think, a point of view on a personality type yeah. in a way that this movie doesn't. Like the Holdovers is not tearing Giamatti's character down. It's more like rehabilitating him through niceness, which is probably a better approach to a Christmas story anyway. Like. It's yeah, no, smoothing down his rough edges and like bring him into the fold and like finding something lovable about him. That's what Christmas is all about, man. <laughs> well, I, I I do respect that about like a certain type of Christmas movie. You were calling this like a bitter one earlier, and I think that's right. And like some of the best ones are like I my favorite Christmas stuff usually is like stuff like I don't know Tangerine or Scrooge yeah. or something where it seems like a very like anti Christmas movie on the surface, and then it has like these like sweet notes towards the end that like kind of shave off the bitter a little bit but you still remember the bitter the bitter is still there you know that might be the only thing that's under the surface by the end of the film is that there is still something there you know that's a little dark and um anxious and uh and sad about these people but again they're they're still going through it you know it's not like it's a they're they're complete people by the end of the film they've just nice they've just had a nice time semi nice time and they've done some nice things for each other you know like uh i think the the scene that really got me uh on a personal level was when uh the kid uh played by dominic sessa who is this his debut film i think he was discovered through the auditioning process i don't think he was like you know a known actor before this okay he he was very good like he he took to the to the script very well and to his character very well. I mean he's he's just an absolute. Um, what, what kind of kid is he? Is, is he what I describe him as a bastard? He's like a gangly grump, <laughs> you know. Gangly grump. Yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I doesn't like quite that. know what to do with his body yet, but yeah, he also like yeah, has he's... like a arms folded. Like, can you believe this attitude? Like, you know that scene in um. Wet Hot American Summer, where Paul Rudd uh, like slams his uh, cafeteria tray on the ground, and Journey Grapple makes him pick it up. He's like, yeah, oh. yeah. <laughs> he's basically doing that for like ninety minutes, yeah, or two hours. I forgot this movie is longer than I want it to be. Yeah, it's like two, it's like it's like two hours and fifteen minutes. Oh like my that. god, you you felt it was too long. I I I enjoyed the length. I enjoy. I wasn't looking at my watch. I think it's okay in the context of the holidays because you're not going anywhere anyway. Like you're under a blanket, you're settling down. But yeah, I would prefer most comedies to be eighty to a hundred minutes. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> On principle, fine, but but is this a comedy? It's got comedic parts in it, mostly because the characters are sad and and bitter uh, about themselves and about each other and other people ultimately. But would this count as a comedy? Uh, I saw it more as like a, I mean, I want to say straight up drama, but it, it that doesn't fit either. It, it's it's like a melding of of different uh, comedy and drama. You know, it, it I would I don't know how to classify. It. I, I guess that's the uh, charm of Alexander Payne. 
it definitely ends on a tearjerker note. Uh, so maybe it wants to be a drama. I think it's at its best when it is a comedy. I think it's the closest a comedy you could get to and still get this kind of like awards prestige because that genre is usually a little diminished, uh, yeah. which is why something like Oppenheimer has a much better chance of getting to the top of a list than like Barbie does because that's very recognizable, straight up comedy. Uh, Oppenheimer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you that's the comedy? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, even Oppenheimer, I mean, that was... Um... What's the best word for it? It, it was bodacious. It was uh, bombastic. It, it's it, kind of humorless, though. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Humorous or humorless? Humorless. Uh, well, yeah, of course. It's humorless. I mean, uh, it's about the guy who helped invent the atomic bomb. I mean... The funniest thing in that movie is the reaction shots from the uh, sketch comedy level Einstein they cast in it. <laughs> Do you feel like that was... Not to go, go off off of holdovers but that you saw watchmen right Zack snyder's watchmen no i've never seen that okay in that movie a lot of the famous people look like snl versions of right. famous people you know like the nixon guy the um uh there's the guy who plays pat buchanan there's uh uh you know a couple other people in it and um there, there was the, oh who was the guy the guy that invented the delorean i think was in there uh, Mr. Iacocca, he, there, there was that guy. And they all look like they're impersonating these famous figures, and they in fact are. But it's, it's really ridiculous, but they're also supposed to be kind of serious, and that really undercuts, because you can't look away from the guy's nose who's playing Nixon. It's, it's like he just popped it on, and the, you can almost see the glue. You know, I, I mean, you can't, but you can almost sense the glue that's on his face. And uh, that's bad. Yeah, I, the Einstein and Oppenheimer kind of played like a visual joke to me in that way. Like he felt very unreal. Like they didn't, <laughs> they didn't manage to make him look like he was part of the environment, you know? Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's because he's an unreal figure. I mean, the guy was brilliant, <laughs> you know? And to say that he's brilliant is an understatement. I yeah. mean, like, you know, historically speaking, like, like everyone knows Einstein, you know? That's the general consensus that he was uh, a genius. So to say, oh, the man was brilliant. That's just redundant. But uh, yeah, maybe, maybe they, that was on purpose, that he looked weird. <laughs> that he looked like an impersonation of Einstein. I will say the cast of uh, Holdovers look like real people. I mean... Yeah, even the glass eye, yeah. Like, these faces are very well cast. Like, it seems... It, it could border on caricature, especially Paul Giamatti is definitely playing a type that he's played before. But I don't know. I, I bought all these characters. They seemed very well considered, well thought out. Definitely, definitely. Who would you? What was the the character that Paul Giamatti played in the past that you would relate to uh, for this movie? Well, I guess with him, I I can't think of a specific character off the top of my head. I'm I'm just going with like his humor in performances is usually like I am a lovable asshole. Like I am a dick. I'm gonna say things that you're not supposed to say because it's rude. But you lo- you're going to love me anyway, you know? Yeah, I-, I guess you're right. Yeah, And I don't always make that leap. Like, a lot of times, like, I remember hating Sideways. It's been a long time. I can't really speak on it now. But, like, at the time, I found it very abrasive and not charming at all. And, like, the charm works here. Like, he is, he is a lovable asshole in this movie. Yeah, the charm works here. But I would say Sideways is not a charming movie. It, 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 I, I loved Sideways, not because it's quote unquote iconic 
uh, as a comedy or as a dark comedy. But because I, I just identified with the the again, that's a movie of assholes, or at least two of them, and they get into scrapes and they lie and they uh, steal <laughs> and they're drunk and they're sad. And uh, I'm like, those are people, man. Those are real people. That those people exist, and you probably know some in your life. You know, uh, you might even be one of them. But that movie is not charming. You know, it's not like, oh, this is cute. No, it's 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 almost angry. Uh, Holdovers is not really angry. It's about people who are angry, but it's. This movie, like you said, is is sweet. Is it does have a charm to it, and it becomes more so as it goes on. It's a very I I would call this progressive. I think that's a good term for it. I think. Well, it's definitely progressive for pain. If you're talking about like him being kinder and like more empathetic to people, <laughs> but but are they are they really in a better spot when the movie ends? No, but I think he's I think he's more empathetic to them as characters and as people. Like he's not there to eviscerate a type of person the way he would be with like a Tracy Flick or Matthew Broderick's character in that movie in election. <laughs> they were straight up arch nemesis to each other. That was, that was yeah. great. And they're both awful. <laughs> yeah, and they're both awful. Yeah, in different ways. But yeah, all <laughs> over. This this movie is is sweet. Uh I think I wrote in my quick letterbox uh review, not think, I'm looking at it right now. So, you know, the better way to say it is, I know, uh, sweetly bitter. That was yeah. one of the terms. It's, it, it, by the end of the movie, it's still bitter, but there's a sweetness to it. It's, it's almost like, like, like an inverse. I think I said that earlier on the podcast. It's, it's, it's like it swaps. It's not bittersweet. It's sweetly bitter because I just didn't think like they were in completely better places. They were just kind of slightly better off in their bad places like they have a different perspective on things but it's still up to um up to them to get better after the film is over you know as their stories continue hey they learned to like two other people you know and that was better than where they started off where they liked no other people yeah yeah i, I agree with that you know um who would you say is the strongest performance in this film out of the three of them, uh, I would probably say Paul Giamatti. I don't know. We, we were talking earlier about like him being like uh, adorable a little bit in this. I, I think what it is is like as I'm getting older, I get grumpier, and also my body fails me in ways that like undercut my confidence. Like I have like psoriasis and rosacea and like gout. And, uh, you know, just like as you get older, you get this like growing list of maladies that makes you feel like this like hideous grump <laughs> just wants to stay inside. You know, yeah. I kind of get, get him, even though I'm not as old as he is or maybe as rude as he is. He's not, you know, you're not that, you know, just in talking to you, you're, you're a very nice guy and very personable. Uh, he is the opposite of that. Uh, he's personable in the sense that he can talk to people. But do you want to really hear what he has to say? Because he's always talking over their heads and sometimes directly into their uh, into their faces and down their mouths, you know, uh, down their throats. Yeah, but like the lovable asshole trope is that you're supposed to 
find humor in him saying things that you know should not be said in a social situation, but yeah. you're kind of like, well, he's right to say it, <laughs> you know? Like, I wouldn't dare, but I'm glad that he's being the asshole here. Like, it's like he's your superhero. <laughs> so he's different from Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets. Uh, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't, know, I don't know why. I, I don't know why I brought that up. But that's definitely a lovable asshole character, though. If I recall, he it is right a lovable right. asshole character, but he says things that are almost borderline, really inappropriate. You know, like because his character has OCD, but I also suspect he has something else in in the movie, and he's very socially inept. Like, uh, like one of the, his first scene is in a restaurant, and he's he wants his table the table he always sits at and it's occupied by two people who he suspects are jewish he doesn't really know they're jewish he just thinks they are and he and um you know he's like appetites aren't as big as your noses he says that and i'm like oh my god this guy's terrible now by the end of the movie he's he's progressed and he's become a better person sort of but well not sort of he had the according to the movie he has become a better person and he's now in a relationship with someone and well with two people technically uh, he's got a friend and he's got a girlfriend and everything's fine but it's a cute movie but but when he starts off he's very ugly you know and i guess that's the point is the contrast with how he becomes later paul giamatti in this movie is not that i wouldn't call him ugly no there's uh, there's that archie bunker streak in him that you're describing <laughs> no not at all uh but yeah, nowhere in this movie is Paul G. Money straight up ugly to people. He's just rude. And uh, even if he's accurate, he's still, it, it's still like, do you really want to, do people want to hear that? You know, he talks over the heads of a guy who's dressed like Santa Claus and a bartender at a bowling alley. And he's, he's spouting off things like, like, you know, from uh, ancient history, you know, and it's like as, this guy said, oh, blah, 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 blah. I can't quite recite it because I, I was never an anti-ancient history. I almost said anti-history. Uh, ancient history, uh, aficionado or anything like that. But but he's definitely talking over these two characters' heads while he's agreeing with them. You don't find that relatable? Like No, that's very that's very Talking relatable. to normies out in the world about movies? Like, I feel like... No, that's very relatable. I feel like I could just spout off bullshit about uh, you know, <laughs> my favorite new Wes Anderson movie for five minutes, and people are like, "What the fuck are you saying? Stop talking right now!" You know. I, I just saw the newest Marvel movie, and you're like, and then we're like, "Have you seen Salo?" Let me talk your ear off about Quentin Depew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Andre Tarkovsky. Yeah, I, I I saw uh Stalker the other day. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, the 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 dark tones of da 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 da. You know, but it's so unique and so great. And the other guy's like, "Did you see Spider Man?" It's like you're talking to someone not below you or anything, and and it's not below you. Those movies are fine too. No, I'd say they have a much healthier relationship with the world than we do. We do, yes. That's what I was getting at. They they're they're more tuned into pop culture and what most people will like and like you said healthy you know we're we're kind of on a different wavelength you know uh and that's fine we're we're, we're critics we're cinephiles you know we we love movies and we want movies to be good if not great uh if not brilliant 
Uh, and I think sometimes that gets lost, you know, when we're watching movies. You know, we, we hold them up to standards that are way too high, you know. And um, The Holdovers, like we've, we've been saying, is a pretty straightforward film. It's not necessarily like saying something deep about uh, society or something, you know, like uh, Aesop's Fables or something uh, crazy like that. It's just straightforward performances and great script. You know, it's a it's a movie. Yeah, like the top three movies, you know, Killers, Oppenheimer, and this one. Two of those take very big swings. They're very high ambition. The stakes are big. And to me, I don't think that much about them. Like, I like them fine, but they don't mean that much to me. This one, I probably like the most out of the three, but it has, like, no ambition. It's, like, very over the plate, just trying to make you happy uh, and make you laugh and feel warm which is fine. Like it, it does its job. And I think for like, especially in the context of like a Christmas movie, I think that's totally legit. Yeah. I, I would even say at this point, even though I gave my top spot to Barbie, uh, which is fine. I loved Barbie. Absolutely. I still love it. Um, I would say as far as favorites go, this, this would be right up there. You know, that's great uh, for me. I just, I adore Barbie's. Oppenheimer is very rich in many ways. As a biography, it's very unconventional. As a political thriller, it's very emotional. <laughs> and for me, it's very much to put power behind that emotionality with my language. I mean, talking to Hoytra about it early on, we wanted to shoot the film on large format for the immersive quality. We wanted to really take the audience to these places. Hoyta and Chris and this IMAX road rally that they've been doing. I mean, you want to talk about the highest possible degree of difficulty? There was just something so pure about it. This is a format of spectacle, but I got very curious to discover this as an intimate format. The face is like a landscape. There's a huge complexity and a huge depth to it. How can we get this camera closer to people? So yeah, I really wasn't exaggerating when I said like Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, and The Holdovers really took every category except for the ones where they were not eligible. Like in um, Best Animated Film, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the only animated film in the top 10 that took that category. And Best Foreign Language Film was Anatomy of a Fall, which is a very good movie. Took took home the top prize at Cannes. And then best documentary was still a Michael J. Fox movie, which is a documentary I haven't seen. Um, I would say probably points to there being kind of a weak category field this year. I don't don't think there's anything like especially big and best documentary. That's like, you know, dominating uh, awards bodies right now. There's no clear narrative there. Yeah, I, I agree with that, but I did just recently see carpet cowboys and I would list that as like, like, now as probably my favorite documentary of the year i saw that was playing at the broad i wanted to check it out but i think i missed my window yeah it just wrapped up today i i had three in my ballot i had three documentaries i've already discussed with you like it was ones i saw at film festivals uh (laughs) which was we kill for love which a movie we talked about for a good while oh great one yeah i love that and you know disappearance of share height and going to mars which both played at um New Orleans Film Festival. So if you want to hear us talk about those, we already went to depth there too uh, on our last episode we did together. Yeah. But yeah, those are the three categories that weren't 
Oppenheimer, Killers of the Flower Moon, and The Holdovers. In every other instance where they were eligible, those movies took the winning spot. Best score, best cinematography, adapted screenplay, Oppenheimer. You know? uh, <laughs> yeah. Original screenplay went to The Holdovers, but again, that's in the top three. So, uh, And I feel like that was deserved. Totally deserved. A great screenplay. Was it adapted from Rushmore, though? Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, this movie's not like Rushmore, in my opinion. It's not. You don't Rushmore's, think so? No, Rushmore's its own thing, man. Although someone on on Letterbox did compare uh, Dominic Sessa's character to uh, uh, Jason Schwartzman's character of Max Fisher in a lot of ways. And Bill Murray's an old grump in that movie too. Yeah, but they're they're done differently. They're not. It's not the same movie. I would say one movie is. I don't know. One movie is Wes Anderson, and this movie is Alexander Payne. Like that—that's—that's that's pretty, you know, obvious. Obviously, and they're both directors. in love with Hal Ashby. Okay, yeah. There's similarities. That's all. I'm joking. There's similarities, but no, they're not the same movie. There's not. There's no. This is not an <laughs> but I can see similarities. Yes. But yeah, I would. I would have liked to have seen the the wealth spread around a little more. There are a lot of great movies that came out this year, and it seems like. Those are the three that like really won over this collective of critics. And yeah. if the top 10 could have been those three titles repeated over and over again until the numbers ran out, it probably would have been that. <laughs> so it seems like that's what people were really passionate about. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, I agreed with Best Actress, Lily Gladstone, but I would have probably chosen... Uh, I chose Killers of the Flower Moon, but I also saw her in The Unknown Country. And I absolutely loved her in that. That looked good. It's like a road trip movie where she's like grieving and kind of like a very small independent film, right? Yeah, she's grieving. She's trying to heal. She's talking to family and she meets some new friends. And um, yeah, she's really trying to uh, to figure out things. And it's, it's a very, it's a very good movie. She's very good in Killers of the Flower Moon, though. Like She's incredible in it, yeah. The only other things I can remember seeing her in are Certain Women and Reservoir Dogs. She's very good in both of those. Yeah, Reservation Dogs. What did I say? Reservoir you Dogs. Said, you, said re- you said Reservoir, yeah. I, I uh, skipped over the joke of the pun and just went straight for <laughs> the just, source. You just, you just missed it, yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, in um, Killers, like she's going toe-to-toe with two of Scorsese's like pet muses that have been in his movies for decades and she like holds her own as the third corner of that movie you know oh absolutely yeah uh my favorite part that she did in that uh perform part of you know my favorite scene of hers was when she encounters the autopsy of one of her sisters and she's just like stark shocked you know the face on her the face she made was just so painful and horrific you know, it stuck with me throughout the rest of the movie, you know, as they're basically decapitating her uh, sister, you know, um, removing her head and trying to study her body like, oh, where did the bullet come from? You know, uh, it's almost like they're they're doing that as a punishment in some way or some kind of like F you to her, even though they're they're playing it nice. Like, well, we're so sorry, Molly. You know, There's that whole underlying thing where they they all the all the white people want their money, you know or most of them anyways. And uh, the top layer is, oh, we're, we're, we're family too. Yeah, we want the best for you guys. You know, it's that fake smile, you know, fake caring, caring and, and everything. Yeah, and the argument that 
this is like slight category fraud is that like most of the movie is told through DiCaprio's perspective as the person who is stealing her livelihood from her and her family and her land and her life. Yeah. And yeah, eventually her life. Um, but you know, if you think about like what lead actor or lead actress is supposed to mean, it's like, is the movie their story? Uh, and even though she is like literally poisoned and can't physically stand on her own two legs for like the last half of the movie, even it is still very much her story and it's her people's story. And you know, it's tragic watching someone so strong willed and stoic become so weak and dependent on this man. Who's like literally trying to kill her. And part of what makes it so weird is that they're still in love in a way. Like he's so good at compartmentalizing because he's kind of a dumbass that like (laughs) he, uh, he still has like immense love from her and is okay. Like, very literally committing a genocide on her people and her immediate family. Even, even at the end, of, even at the end of the movie, she, when she like asks him, uh, was that poison you were giving me? And he's like, no, honey, that was uh, medicine. And, and she, she walks out on him. She's still kind of doing it with some kind of affection. It's really weird. Yeah. She's clearly still like, you were my husband, but she's not angry. She's genuinely searching for like the last scrap of good in him. Yeah. So yeah, I th- I think the movie maybe diminishes her screen time a little bit because ultimately it's still a Scorsese movie about greedy white men committing crimes because th- there's no bottom to that pit. So in in a way he he is doing his normal thing. But she is a strong actress giving a strong performance in this movie that she just absolutely stands out in. Like her presence is all over it. Totally agreed. I loved her in, there was another movie that came out this year, a very independent movie. I don't even know if it has a, an official distributor yet, but it's been screening here and there. It's called Quantum Cowboys. Uh, well, she has, yeah, it's a good title. It's, it's very much a, a movie where it's kind of explores the metaphysical and multiverse timelines and stuff. It's, it's got a lot of animation. In fact, I could, I could actually consider it an animated movie. It's got a lot of rotoscoping. You know, kind of like a Scanner Darkly and uh, Waking Life, mm-hmm. and um, uh, it's it's a west. It's kind of an acid western uh, in a way. Although I guess the proper term would be like multiverse western or something, metaphysical western. I don't know. And it's about these two guys who are essentially like cowboys, although they're they're like wannabe cowboys maybe, and they encounter Willie Gladstone, and uh, they get into some adventures and there's like moments where they're going through the past and the future and the present. It's, it's, it's a really weird movie, but it's very good. And she's really good in it. It looks like you can rent that one VOD for like five bucks right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I would, I would heavily recommend that one. It's very, and I know unknown country is currently streaming on movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think certain women was like her big breakthrough with like cinephiles, the Kelly Reichardt film. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just think ever since there's just been a wait for some big showcase for her talent since then. And Killers is it. Yeah, I mean, Scorsese could be doing much worse things with his, you know, prestige and his money and his opportunity than like giving her that stage, you know? So yeah. I, I think she was one of like the biggest revelations about that movie. It was like very like, it felt like a long time coming. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was very satisfying in that way. Yeah. Next, she'll be uh, an X-Man. 
she won't be. I don't know. I was just saying, like, usually when a uh, when an actor or an actress gets a breakout role, the pattern has been the next movie they're they're going to do some superhero schlock. Hey, you got to make money somehow. The unknown country is not going to buy you a mansion. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but that's the recognizable pattern. The, the yeah. indie director who then gets on to do a Star Wars project or a, a Marvel movie or something, and maybe they legitimately want to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, it's just an example of getting sucked up into the system, and it could go either way for them. But Lily Gladstone, I, I, I haven't heard anything about her being an X-Men movie. I was just bullshitting. But um, great actress. Yeah, just great actress all all around. Uh, I'm looking at best ensemble right now, and it was given to Oppenheimer for, for uh, from Sefka. Did you have uh, an alternate best ensemble? I mean, yeah, I did not vote for Oppenheimer in any category. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had uh, Poor Things, which I thought, especially Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe. Are three like incredible performances in that movie, like really off the wall stuff in a beautiful way. Gerard Carmichael's very good too. Um, I also had Asteroid City, which I didn't I didn't nominate them in any particular category for actors, but when I think about like the movie as a whole, I think everyone delivers that Wes Anderson dialogue in a very convincing way. Um, especially Jeffrey Wright and Tilda Swinton are maybe two standouts. Uh, but those are like such minor characters that they're really just part of the bigger whole. And uh, I'd also put Bo is Afraid, which is not yeah. even a movie I particularly love, but it is a movie packed with a bunch of strange performances. And especially by the time you get to Patti Lapone and oh, um, Parker Posey in the third act. That's particularly odd. Yeah, they push the movie into high gear in a way that like uh, really sells it. That was a total twist. I was not expecting that that direction at the end, towards the end of the movie. I, I thought it was going to end with Parker Posey, you know, that whole scene. I, de- then, I definitely had a uh, Patty Lapone in my best supporting actress category as well. Cause of how much I loved her, <laughs> you know, her big monologue at the end. Yeah. I, th- I think I had her in there too. Uh, as far as best ensemble, I gave it to Barbie. Totally legit. I mean, everyone's very funny in that and there's plenty of famous people throughout the movie, like giving great performances. Definitely. Yeah, no, Absolutely. And uh, some people I wasn't expecting to be in there um, in, in supporting roles as Barbie or as Ken, you know, like uh, John Cena. He was like a merman Ken. He was a merman Ken. And I remember uh, Barbie's reaction was, oh, hi. <laughs> like even she was confused. Like what? <laughs> you know, great little movie. Well, not little movie. but You know, I've seen a lot of people complain about Will Ferrell's participation in that film and like saying he like drags it down. And I don't know if it's just like because I grew up with SNL and like watching SNL films, which are probably subpar in terms of quality. But, you know, if if that's what you were trained to see as comedy, like I still think A Night at the Rocks is very funny. Yeah, uh, you know? I, did, I did too. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. He didn't like stand out to me as like a sore spot in the movie the way that he has with some people who are kind of Barbie naysayers, I guess. Yeah, they're just party poopers. Yeah. Totally but, but fine. Whatever, whatever. I mean, I thought Will Ferrell was funny in it. Uh, he's like, get in the box. You yeah, know, he, get in the box. He plays kind of a stock character, you know, the kind of like clueless business nerd who uh, is basically just an overgrown brat child. In a suit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's Will Ferrell. I mean, he knows how to play those kind of characters. You know, the the brats, the 
the the guys who yell in a very funny way you know he's got that that down pat you know where he's talking normal and then he just screams you know that that's that's a funny thing i think <laughs> that he does <laughs> so i didn't have barbie and best ensemble but i did have it uh for best original screenplay which as you said went to the holdovers yeah no that makes sense i i think i was i was confused i was like does this go with adapted screenplay because it's based on barbie yeah i went with uh you know their fyc campaign for like oscar voters and for like critics associations was best original, original? so i okay. just went with what they told me oh okay well, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I'm being it, bullied by the marketing into you know, no, following the party an, line. This is an original. I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, it's an original movie in that it takes it in a totally different direction. It's not like Barbie's Playhouse or something. No, this is this is this is different, you know. And uh, and it goes into some places, you know. But um, I, I suppose original makes sense. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, best director. Um, do you agree with Christopher Nolan being uh, the winner? <laughs> again, again, you didn't vote for Oppenheimer. I know that. But do you think now is his time? I don't think it's his best movie. I don't think it's a particularly interesting movie. It really? tries really hard to be interesting. Like it's it's a pretty serviceable like dad movie biopic about an important man and like him reckoning with the evil he has wrought on the world. I think the movie tries really hard to be interesting by like basically being a three hour cross cutting montage where it's cutting back and forth between the Manhattan project where the atom bomb is being built. And then the Senator hearings way after the fact where like Robert Downey Jr. is like, you know, dismantling his career and his legacy. And then, you know, his going back to his days in school where he's like having these metaphysical freakouts and like imagining the inside of an atom and then maybe a little bit of his sex stuff with his two sexual partners. You know, there's a little bit of like lyrical intrusions of that dynamic in the cross-cutting montage as well. And I think it's all a lot of visual busyness for what's actually a very normal film. Like there's really nothing that interesting about Oppenheimer's ideas visually or narratively to me. I thought it was fine. Okay. So who did you give best director to on your ballot? Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. For poor thing. Yeah. yeah. Both because he's, you know, becoming more and more of a filmmaker I love. Like, I was not into him when he was in his, like, provocateur stage around, like, the Dogtooth era. Mm -hmm. And the more he's, like, developed his art over the years, I've kind of get it now. Like, I understand what he's doing a lot better now. But also, I gave it to him because uh, it's my favorite movie of the year, so why not give it the best director <laughs> category to him as well? Because <laughs> that movie is definitely directed. You know, It's very personally stamped aesthetically, and it really tries a lot of things in every scene. Oh, sure. Uh, I gave mine to Greta Gerwig for uh, Barbie. Yeah. But I gave the number three spot to Takashi Yamazaki for Godzilla Minus One. Hell yeah. I, I felt like that, that movie in particular was very surprising. Uh, but it, the direction to be able to make a, a film that had a much smaller budget compared to the uh, MonsterVerse movies, the Godzilla Kong movies that are made here in America, and to make it look so freaking real-ish and, and just absolutely visceral 
and monstrous. And to do that on, like I said, on such a small budget, what that was a huge undertaking. And he nailed it. Everyone nailed it in that movie. I had that one uh, for best foreign language film. Me too. And I also had it for best score because I thought the music was so good. I know it's a mix of like repurposed callbacks to the original Godzilla movie because this is like the 70th anniversary movie. So it's it's dialing the clock back to World War II and specifically as an homage. So there's a little bit of the original Godzilla score mixed in there. But the other score leading up to it is really beautiful in this like kind of mathematical like Philip Glass kind of way that like really builds your emotions to the point where like I saw the sort of like big emotional reveals coming from like miles away, but the music was just like pulling tears out of my eyes, like a magnet. Like <laughs> The music's like really powerful, especially in that final stretch. That movie is very affecting. It, it, yeah, it really is. I was so surprised and taken by it. It's, it's just amazing. Um, let's see. I gave, uh, I gave, I gave Godzilla minus one for best cinematography. That's interesting. Yeah, I think uh, Oppenheimer took it you now for for us for Sefka, but I gave it to to Kozo Shibasaki for Godzilla minus one, and uh, I was very happy with that. Uh, the the monster attacks in Godzilla minus one are really well shot, like especially that early scene where Godzilla's kind of dinosaur sized before it grows to like full strength, yeah. and it's attacking a small battalion of airplane mechanics on this beach um it's shot in this like almost like uh saving private ryan style it's like on the shoulder camera catching the chaos from like weird angles and like the godzilla foot just comes from out of frame and just crushes people uh yeah very well shot definitely 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 and my number three spot for cinematography this this is interesting uh trish gavoni for once within a time the the documentary film essay that uh Godfrey Reggio did. I genuinely have never heard that title before. I really? spend all day looking up movies. <laughs> I don't I don't know that one. That that was my you know I I didn't dislike the movie or anything like that, but I loved how it was how it was done. I think the movie kind of went over my head a little bit or maybe under my head. I'm not exactly sure. Uh but I definitely wasn't exactly um on the same page with it, but I loved how it was uh, conceived. I love the uh, the photography of it, uh, and uh, I wanted to give it something, uh, something of note. What's the title again? Once within a time. All right. Yeah, highly recommended. It. It's it's a weirdo movie, but um, it's a it's a good movie, I think. Uh, for cinematography, I went with Robbie Ryan for Poor Things, because uh, Lanthimos really pushed him to go overboard with those fisheye lenses that like really gives the movie a very bizarre look. It's v- super specific. Yeah. Um, and also Mark Jenkins for Ennis Main. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah. Cause that movie is filmed on hand cranked clockwork cameras. Um, and like very old vintage equipment, um, in a way that like, you know, a lot of movies will add a digital film grain to something to make it look antique. like, skin and rink or the holdovers or something like that. Uh, Mark Jenkins is like making these ancient looking movies with actual physical ancient objects. And uh, <laughs> the sort of like spooky folk horror feel of the movie is something he like made by hand uh, in a way that I found very um, 
endearing and you know I, I just love that he's out there with that full auteur control over the image like that where he like is making the movie himself this, this is the director to this cinematography himself oh really i didn't know that yeah and if you watch uh behind the scene footage of him like yeah there's a good behind the scenes documentary uh on uh, youtube yeah if if you see that footage you can see uh what the difference of that house looks like shot in digital where you watch him filming the only main actor in the film and it's like it doesn't look like much like it's just like you know people hanging out on an island but the form that he's shooting it through really transforms it in this like hypnotic spell um it's a really special movie uh and no one out there is doing it quite like him yeah no uh i I forgot that it was it was the hand crank movie i uh I know I remembered the film green. I remembered the the folkish 70s style uh filmmaking of it uh, in a way, but I I totally forgot about the uh the camera uh types. I think it's and, this like um, clockwork camera that like the shots only last like 30 seconds or something like that. So you crank yeah. it up and then it winds down like a clock. Oh yeah, yeah. The clockwork crank uh, <laughs> of uh, the cameras that reminds me of Manos, the Hands of Fate, because I think I think that's those cameras, those type of cameras were used in uh, in that movie too. Uh, I mean, you know, for that movie, it was probably just a matter of uh, that's all they could afford. But yeah. uh, and it's not a it's a very hypnotic movie, but it's not a good movie. It's very weird. Obviously, if you've seen Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, but if you watch it without the riffs, you know, just by itself, it's a very hypnotic film uh, because of how bad it is and because of how it's it's kind of works as a, as a horror in its own way. But the photography is very um, is very bad, but the the grain and the uh, the dirt and uh, and all that you can you can almost see like when the the timer runs out and they have to load in a new new uh film uh you can almost feel it when it transitions and uh that's interesting that uh Enos men would uh would use something similar to that yeah it's it's you know it's handheld personable filmmaking in the same way that something like manos is Uh, (laughs) and they're both like small crews you know trying to make something for a I don't know audience. If, I don't know if Manos yeah, it was trying to make something for a wide audience. That movie was made because the the filmmaker uh who was like a manure salesman uh <laughs> wanted to make uh something that could turn out a buck. You know, yeah, exactly. He just wanted to make a movie uh that would do that. And of course he did his own premiere and all that stuff and it wasn't very well received at all as you can imagine. Uh and then it just faded into obscurity very quickly. Uh Enosmen obviously it's different because it's made by an auteur, someone who's very much uh, into the craft of filmmaking. You know, the other movie was just done by a guy who wanted to churn out a product. But yeah, the the cameras that they use were probably very similar, and that does give a certain texture to the stories that they're, they're telling. And um, that means a lot, I think. What I would love to see is um, a weight difference between what Mark Jen- Jenkins was shooting with, which is this little tiny handheld clockwork camera, versus the IMAX cameras that um, the cinematographer <laughs> for Oppenheimer was using, which was the Sefka winner. Hoyt von Hoytema, I think. Yeah. 
there's a lot of footage of him like operating these like shoulder mounted IMAX cameras because a lot of the movie <laughs> is shot like up close. You know, they use the IMAX in a traditional sense with like the far off explosives and things, but he also like shoots these like intimate dialogue scenes with the IMAX camera, which is not and those typical. Fucking, those fucking cameras are loud. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so maybe, maybe just as like a physical feat, you know, lugging that camera around is like worthy of an award in itself. <laughs> hey, I, I used to uh, do videography with a, a shoulder mounted super VHS camera. So uh, that sucker was heavy. Yeah. And I was a kid using it, so I mean, you know, that that itself is is definitely a feat worthy of uh, some kind of recognition. I'm gonna be honest; I don't remember the score for Oppenheimer at all, so I can't <laughs> even say whether that deserved best score. Um, did that did that win best score? Yes. Okay. My biggest pull this year for like what I'm passionate about: Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Mutant Mayhem. Oh, yeah? That score is so good. <laughs> it is like the That's most fun. the most a Trent Reznor score has ever sounded like Nine Inch Nails. It's got this like industrial beat to it, where like usually his scores for movies are very laid back, ambient washes of like tone. And I'm like, well, anybody could have made this. This doesn't sound like Trent Reznor, but like he finally made it super personable and recognizable as his work in the Ninja Turtles movie of all things. <laughs> did you nominate that for a uh, animated feature? Like I did. At all? Okay. There's, there's <laughs> I really like that movie. No, that, 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 that's, that's great. I think, um, you know, I, I think some people maybe are hesitant about stuff like that. Cause it's Seth Rogen. You know, he helped make that movie and everything. He's not really involved. He just put up the money. I mean, yeah, well, yeah, I know, but his, his name is kind of associated in the marketing. And also, it's called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and based on that property and everything, and people kind of, oh, I must stay away from that, you know, when it comes to criticism. Well, okay, so the Sefka winner for that is Across the Spider-Verse, which is the only animated movie in the top ten. Yeah. And I get it, because that Sony style of computer animation is really kind of exploded animation aesthetics in the past few years, especially with the first Spider-Verse film, I think in like 2018 and every iteration that's like tried to update sort of standard computer graphics with this new style. That's very expressive and tactile and tries to add layers and like drawing in the margins to that kind of smoother Disney Pixar style. Like it's really like disrupting that, sort of industry standard in a way that I think is very exciting, but I've never fully connected to one of those, like on an emotional level, the way I did with the mutant mayhem, those, the Ninja Turtles movie. Like, I think it's using that same spider verse style of animation for something that feels grimy. And in particular, they're, they're going for like an eighties and nineties, like um, street graffiti, kind of like visual patina to it. Um yeah. but all the characters are like super gross and just like goopy. Um he's <laughs> like it's literal mutant mayhem. Like it's just nonstop character designs of like the grossest little monsters and bugs you've ever seen. And I think it really uses that Spider-Verse style in a new way. It's not just copying what the first movie did in 2018 or like pushing that same style further. It's trying something new with it. 
um, in a way that I found exciting. I think I think it is a super well animated movie. Pretty cool. I like that. And the only other two movies I nominated were anime because they're both um, 2D traditional hand-drawn stuff, which was... Yeah, uh, we, we don't get those as much anymore. Yeah. Or at all, really. Uh, the, the, only, the last one I can remember is The Princess and the Frog. Yeah, I mean, basically Japan is like the last bastion of that. So, you know, yeah. my other favorite animated movies of the year were both Japanese. Did you see Robot Dreams? I did not get to that one yet. Um, yeah, me either. Yeah, unfortunately. I'm not even sure that's getting a wide distribution release until next year. That was just part of that, you know, FYC screener ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Is that 2D as well? It looks 2D. It looks 2D. I think it's Spanish. Uh, I, I need to check that out. Okay. I haven't made time for it yet. Is there anything else you feel passionate about? Or you think we, we about covered it? <laughs> you know? Well, uh, I like baseball. And pro wrestling. <laughs> uh, I think I nominated, not think, I know I nominated Blackberry. Blackberry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a real big fan of the filmmaker, Matt Johnson. Uh, he did Operation Avalanche and The Dirties previously. And those were like many years ago, I think like a decade ago. So he's he's just now coming back to, to um, feature film directing. And I was very excited to see what he was going to do with... Um, the story of the Blackberry, and uh, I loved Glenn Howard in it. Uh, he was so funny and so angry, and uh, and intense. And I, I, that was a great supporting uh, uh, performance. In fact, that was my number one supporting performance uh, for for an actor uh, of the year. And um, uh, yeah, uh, that was that was the only other one I guess I, I wanted to 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 highlight as a. Uh, uh, something I was definitely very passionate about this year. I had a lot of long shots for best supporting, um, especially uh, Robert Pattinson's vocal work for the boy and the heron. Speaking of anime, okay. uh, cause he is grotesque in that movie and just makes weird growly <laughs> noises the whole time, but it's very fun. Um, and also Antoine uh, Reinhardt's for anatomy of a fall. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you saw that film, but he plays no. this like weaselly, prosecutor that has like the most punchable face in the world and you want to punch him in his <laughs> smug little mouth the whole time I like, really elevated the drama of that movie and just like how hateable he was um, nice. <laughs> I haven't seen the the Glenn Howerton performance I need to watch that I, I hear he's like really over the top doesn't he like shave his head bald for it as well yeah he, he well not completely bald he's got a, a big bald spot basically <laughs> and uh, around his head it's like the, the hair is like a crown so to speak uh and uh george costanza yeah he's very aggressive in the movie he very his character wants to succeed and be a successful businessman and but he's also kind of at least at first a little pathetic uh in how successful he wants he's clearly good at his job but he's really like like oh man i gotta do he's like desperate you know and uh he latches on to this project and he wants to churn it out and do a really good job and of course it does you know does very well for a number of years but it the, the performance just accelerates from the beginning to the end and it, it's it's really an amazing performance i think you would really dig the movie i mean i tend to go for really over the top you know showy performances in these kinds of categories just like stuff that no one else could have played because you made it so singularly your own yeah um, so like uh, looking at my ballot, I had like 
Emma Stone and Poor Things is really over the top. Nicolas Cage and Dream Scenario. Margot Robbie and Barbie. Like, no one else could have done it quite the way she did. Fr- Franz Rogowski and Passages. Um, and also the Robert Pattinson and Boy in the Heron. Like, really, like, outrageous performances in a way that it sounds like Glenn Howerton did in Blackberry as well. Um, so, yeah, I definitely need to check that out. Can't watch them all, you know? No, that's the true, but we can try. Yeah. I probably saw 101, 102 new releases this year so far. Okay. I think I'm ready to like move on to the next calendar year at this point. <laughs> There's lots of stuff I'm looking forward to. Uh, not least of all the People's Joker, as we mentioned at the top of the episode. I'm looking forward to Eva DuVernay's origin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to wait till, uh, till the new year to watch that, but uh, I'm really looking forward to that. There were definitely a couple screeners that I pushed off because I was like, well, these aren't technically out yet. Like, I want to see La Camara, but I'm not, you know, in a rush. Yeah. I got a full year to catch up. <laughs> the one movie I did love uh, in that category, though, was The Taste of Things, um, okay. which is going wide in America in February. This is this French movie about delicious food, and it looks so warm and cozy, and I wanted to eat everything they were making by hand in the film, and yeah. That one I was Gaga over, uh, even though it's not technically out yet. Oh, it's got Lady Gaga in it? Uh, Julia Pinoche, the Lady Gaga of France. Yeah, she's in that. Oh, okay, well, you said Gaga, <laughs> so I just... I know you didn't mean Lady Gaga. She is, though, going to be in Joker 2, now that you're talking about... Oh, the speaking of Joker. French titles. Oh, yeah, Folie de Mignon. What, what is it called? <laughs> Let's just go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Folie Mignon, yeah, right. But yeah, overall, I mean, if this is the consensus of like the best movies of the year, these are pretty good movies. Like I I'm not especially like bowled over by the choices. These are not big swings. Uh this is a pretty solid list of good movies and uh I think I think speaks well to at least how strong art cinema is right now. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm very happy with the list. And uh, I know you did some coverage on movie going with Bill, so we could push people over there as well to go read uh, any more thoughts you might have on the Sefka list. Uh, well, I did uh, mostly. The post was just the press release. I, oh, I okay. Looked, I wrote at the beginning, like uh, every at the end of every year, you know, Sefka does this press does this uh, announcement, and these are the announce. You know, these are the winners. You know, I'll post my favorites in the uh, in the new year. But until then, here you go. Yeah, that was basically it. <laughs> well, what are you covering on Movie Going With Bill? Uh, let's see. Uh, I got um, lined up. I've got uh, reviews for Fast Charlie, the Pierce Brosnan movie that takes place in New Orleans and Mississippi. Uh, I was confounded by this movie because it has a great Rotten Tomatoes score, but I found it to be a piece of crap. Like seriously, like I, I mean, it's funny in the, how bad it is, but also I recognize it's not really good. It thinks it's being good, but it's not good. I don't like movies that are smug. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, Carpet Cowboys. I got a review of that coming. Um, I I was inspired by um, Governor Elect Jeff Landry's press conference about Medicaid and how he's thinking of making it worse. Uh, or making it terrible uh, So in Louisiana. So I, I want to do an article about 
uh, recommending he watch a movie, and that movie is is uh, Michael Moore's Sicko. So I'm gonna make a recommendation to our governor elect to, to take into consideration watching that film, which is free on YouTube, like officially free on YouTube. So I, I do recommend people see that too, you know, uh, listeners. Uh, and, and of course, I got other reviews and uh, stuff. I'm gonna be covering. Uh, some slam dance uh, movies, specifically movies from the Unstoppable section, which are movies that are made made and or covering people, individuals with disabilities. So I'm going to cover some of those films. And um, I'm not sure yet, but I might be doing something with the Abita Springs Film Festival that's coming up in January. Hell yeah. I, might, I might cover some of that. I'm not sure yet. But it's right nearby you know on the north shore so i I might just do it and that's all at moviegoing.rocks <laughs> yeah uh yes it is although i might be cha- not yet but i might be changing the domain name to moviegoing.xyz uh news came out today about substack specifically the owners of substack uh came out basically in support of uh enabling uh hate speech or hate publications like uh, by neo-Nazis or neo-Nazi sympathizers. They're like, we, we, we're great with freedom of speech and everything, but we're also going to keep making money off these guys. Uh, and uh, that was basically the gist of the, the press release. And a lot of people are like mad about it and wanting to move off the platform. And I might be one of those people. I, I, I definitely don't condone the, that kind of um, uh, rhetoric or uh, commentary. Uh, so I'm probably going to go back to Google Blogger and use a different newsletter platform as well. I'm not sure yet. Uh, I might stick to Substack for a while. We'll see. I'll keep everyone up to date. But for right now, it is moviegoing.rocks. And, uh, if that does change, I'm sure we'll update y'all next time Bill is on for a film festival, which seems to be your regular beat over here. So, yeah. look forward to talking to you then. Yeah, definitely.